Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Or in Greek, the original language, Biblos, Geneseos, Isu Christu, Hiu, Dawid, Hiu, Abraham. Notice those first two words, you're like, that's all Greek to me. Well, those first two words are actually pretty familiar. Biblos is where we get the word Bible. Uh, in Greek, it means book. And then Genesis is a word here translated genealogy, but actually that's not the regular Greek word for genealogy. You know that word because it's come straight into English as the word Genesis. So more literally, that first phrase, Biblos Geneseos, is book of Genesis. In fact, two heavyweight scholars in the Gospel of Matthew, Davies and Allison, translated the book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ. Now, if you were a first century follower, Jewish follower of Jesus, and you're sitting in church one Sunday, and somebody started to read up front this brilliant new literary masterpiece that's called the Gospel of Matthew, right from the opening line, all the red lights on your dashboard would start to go off. Because this phrase, Biblos Geneseos, was used in a Greek translation of the Bible that was popular. The odds are that's what you would have read around the time of Jesus. And it was used for the book of Genesis. The odds are that you would lean over to your Gentile brother or sister in church and say, hey, this this is so good. Matthew is saying that this story you're about to read is about the recreation of the whole world. This story isn't just about a first century rabbi who had some really great things to say. Gandhi was a fan. Martin Luther King Jr. was a fan. He was fantastic, but then he was killed by the Roman Empire. Sure, but it's also about you and about me. It's about Portland. It's about how God, the creator of the universe, stepped back into human history gone awry to rescue and to save all of the creation from top to bottom. Then, that's right, Then we have three titles for Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first is the Messiah, or depending on your translation of the Bible, the Christ can also be translated the king. More literally, it's the anointed one. The Greek word behind that is Christos. Christos, if you're new to the Bible, was not um, Jesus' last name. Kids did not walk up and say, Mr. Christ, or whatever nor if you grew up in conservative evangelical culture, nor was it at all a way of saying the second person of the Trinity or something like that, although Matthew does point in that direction in just a bit. But Christos, once again, was the Greek translation from that popular version of the Bible in the first century of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. The Mashiach or the Messiah was a figure that we read about all through the Old Testament, but in particular in the Psalms and the prophets, a figure kind of on the horizon in the future who one day would come to usher in God's healing, life-giving rule over Israel and the world, or what the Hebrew prophets used to call the kingdom of God. 
That's why the next title is the Son of David. That was also a well-known first century moniker for the Messiah based on a promise that God in 2 Samuel 7 made to King David that the Messiah would come from David's line. It would be his son, meaning his descendant, his great-great-great-great-grandson, which Jesus was. And then finally, you have the title the Son of Abraham, so Abraham, if you know your history, much less your Bible, is the father of Israel. It's a way of saying that Jesus is the one true Israelite in flesh and blood. So in one jam-packed opening line, Matthew is saying right out of the gate that Jesus is the climax to the story of Israel and humanity itself. And if you've ever read the story of Israel, what we now call the Old Testament, what in Jesus' day was called the law, the prophets, and the writings, you know that it's a story in search of an ending. Read this first three quarters of the Bible, part one to the Bible. And when you get to the end, Malachi in the Christian Bible, or if you were a first century Hebrew, two chronicles in the Hebrew Bible, when you get to the end, it's a cliffhanger. There's no, if you know anything about plot and structure, there's no resolution at the end. It's a giant to be continued with an ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. It's a story in search of an ending. The whole thing is pointing forward over the horizon to the Mashiach, to the Messiah, who one day would come and usher in a whole new epoch in human history. For the writer Matthew, that Messiah is here and he goes by the name Jesus. And for Matthew, this is gospel. That's a word meaning good news, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. It's nothing short of a new genesis, a new beginning for the cosmos. Not bad for an opening line to a story. But then we get a genealogy. Let's read it. Verse 2. Abraham, you're thinking, do we really have to read it? Yes. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the f- just if you are thinking about a child name right there, Abinadab. That's not bad. Whoa, whoops. Um, That was a rhyme on accident. The father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. You still alive? Yeah. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Whoops. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, stay with me, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jekoina, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. He's still alive. Deep breath, not done yet. After the exile to Babylon, Jekoina was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. That's another great one if you're thinking about a child. Zerubbabel, the father of somebody. Somebody, the father of Elikim. Elikim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Here we go. Jacob, the father of 
Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. You're still alive out there. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, how many of you read that and thought to yourself, who cares? Honestly, I don't. Who cares? And why is that in there? What a boring, archaic way to start off a story. Well, here's what you have to wrap your head around. In the ancient world, it's very different from today. In a tribal culture in particular, like first century Israel, tracing your family tree was a vital part of your identity. That is an alien and foreign idea, at least to me, in America, unless if you're from the East Coast and old money, or maybe if you're from an immigrant or a minority community, um, unless if that's your story, you usually don't even have a family tree. Come over to my house. There's no family crest over the fireplace with a lion and a Latin phrase, fortuna something or other. There's no, none of that. I don't even know the ethnicity at an academic um, definition of that word. I don't even know the ethnicity of my last name. I don't know if Comers are British or German. One leading theory is that we're Jewish because a lot of Cohens change their name to Comers. Uh, to fend off and avoid, you know, persecution or whatever. Cohen, by the way, is the last surviving priestly line. That would explain the anointing, you know? So that, <laughs> that would explain a lot. But um, I, have no, I have no clue because that's just not a part of my family of origin. I grew up in the Bay Area of California. Don't worry, I moved here way before your rent went up. I'm a victim, not a perpetrator. Um, but I grew up in suburban West Coast, for the most part, white culture. That was my kind of demographic. And so for me, family of origin was not a part of my identity. You were more defined by your vocation than you were by your family tree. I have no idea who my great-great-great-great-grandfather was. But in other parts of the world, and even here in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, in particular in tribal cultures like the Maori in New Zealand or all through Africa, even up into Iceland and Scandinavia or in the upper crust of England, tracing your family tree is a core part of who you are. You are the son of somebody or the daughter of somebody. One historian writes this, for many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession down a city street, we watch figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. The whole thing is a crescendo and climax to Jesus the Messiah. All that to say what for you and me is, ah, who cares? Why is that really in there? If you were a first century Jew, this is, in his language, compelling. You're on the edge of your seat. It is a right out of the gate kind of provocative way to open up the story. But that said, there's more going on here. With your finger right here in Matthew 1, because we're coming back, turn over to Matthew 13. Homework assignment for the coming week. If you get a chance, read through the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end. 
uh, not all in one sitting, you know, two, three, four, five, over the next week, if you get a chance, watch the video from the Bible Project on the Gospel of Matthew. It's fantastic from Tim and company right over the river. And when you get to chapter 13, you're smack dab in the middle of the book, I want you to slow down and I want you to pay close attention to this line. Chapter 13, look down to the end, to verse 52. Jesus said to them, therefore, every, and in my Bible, it's teacher of the law, can also be translated scribe. A scribe was kind of one part Bible teacher and one part lawyer because the Torah or the law was a legal code, all right? So it was essentially an expert in all things Torah, which is the first five books of what we now call the Old Testament. Every teacher of the law or scribe who has also become a mathetes in Greek, or that can be translated disciple, or we prefer the word apprentice, in the kingdom of heaven, meaning who's also a part of the Jesus way, is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Now, owner of a house, don't think you have a mortgage on a three-bedroom condo in southeast, all right? The owner of a house in Matthew's day and age was a wealthy patriarch with a house, meaning not just a building and land, but in charge of his family and his extended family and running a business, and he was successful and well off, and who knows how many servants and house and land and all of that, to the point he has his own storeroom or kind of bank vault in his house. And so it's like a scribe who is also an apprentice who is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom, quote, new treasures as well as old. Now, who is Jesus talking about here? Anybody want to guess? It's okay. It's a safe place. No? He's talking about Matthew. Assuming that Matthew, the writer, was also the Matthew of the Twelve, also known as Levi, then he would have been not only literate, but educated by Rome as a tax collector, so in the elite of society. But he was also Jewish, meaning he grew up in the synagogue, not only on Sabbath, but all through the week as his elementary school, steeped in the Bible of his day. By the time he was a teenager, the odds are he would have known most of the Old Testament by memory. So he is kind of like a scribe, but he's also an apprentice of Jesus, one of the 12 in the inner circle. So basically, all scholars argue that this line right here is a subtle literary way, it's a nod, it's a way of Matthew saying to you and me or the reader, hey, this is the kind of writer I am. This is the kind of writing that's in front of you. I'm like a wealthy man. I have a storehouse. I have so much for you. And I have new treasures as well as old. Meaning there are old treasures in Matthew. Not old as in passe or out of date, but old as in treasures you already know. If you, you know, grew up in the church or if you've ever read through the New Testament or even if you've just been around Bridgetown or a year or two, as we work through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll kind of know a lot of it. You're like, oh yeah, I know that story. I know that story. Oh, that healing, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' death, burial and resurrection. Yeah, I know that story. But there are also new treasures, creative subversive, under the surface, unexpected, out of left field things are, that the odds are you don't 
know at all. You see, there are layers to Matthew. There's a surface layer, and you read it, and you think, oh, yeah, I know that story. But then, under the surface, there's plot and subplot. It's a literary masterpiece. There is all sorts of things that you don't know. Um, like all great things in life, it's very similar to Star Wars. How many of you saw Star Wars Rogue One? Wait, stop, stop, because if you did not, you're living in sin, and it's just going to ruin our entire night, okay? So, hands down, the best Star Wars movie since Return of the Jedi, and that's not even in question. Like, I will not even have that conversation with you. Like, there is a right and wrong answer to that, all right? Now, here's the thing. If you are not, for whatever really sad, tragic reason, and you're just baggage from your family of origin, whatever, you're not all that into Star Wars. And if, if for you it's, it's just a movie and not, you know, mythology for the postmodern world, then, um, and maybe you've never seen the original trilogy that Rogue One is a prequel to, or maybe you've seen it, but, you know, once or twice, and it was, you know, years ago, you're not really all that familiar with it, then you can go to the theater tonight, repent, come down forward for prayer, you know, you're living in sin, and, and, and then go to the theater tonight, and you can watch the movie, order your popcorn, and, and it's just a great story. There's a minute or two where you might kind of scratch your head and might not really like, oh, that, I don't really get that. But you can make sense of the story and really enjoy it. But, but, if you're not only a fan, if you're a super fan, if you're a Padawan, you know, and if you're, you're raising your three children into the way of the four, like if that is your thing, then you know that under the surface there is so, it's just a brilliant film. You know, if you watch Star Wars Rebels, which is not just for kids, come on, you know the ghost, and you see the ghost in three shots, and you think it's still around, and then you hear paging General Syndulla over the loudspeaker, and you think she's still alive, but where's Kanan, where's Ezra, is Ahsoka dead, is she still around or not? And then if you watch, you know, the Clone Wars animated series, you know that Saw Gerrera, it's not a new character, he was actually the original beginning of the Rebel Alliance, he was trained by Anakin Skywalker before he turned evil. And then when Jin's in the tower and she's reading through the Imperial like file names and she reads at one point the Darksaber, you think the Darksaber? Oh my gosh, that's from Mandalore. That's the one weapon that can actually fight a lightsaber. Sabine has it right now. Is she going to unite her tribe or not? Is this like a, like a spoiler for a spinoff one day? Because we all need to see a Mandalorian fight a Jedi. We have to have that movie at some point. And then if you read Catalyst, the novel that goes before, it's a terrible novel. But if you read it, you know all this like weirdness between director Krennic and Galen Erso. You know, it's because they used to be best friends. And now that relationship is absolutely destroyed and he killed his wife and it's just so ugly and sad. And like, there's just all this stuff there. It's so amazing. It's just so incredible. So, so what I'm saying is Matthew is kind of like that. And, and Jesus is kind of like that, that was pretty good. <laughs> By the way, that was just like the tip of the iceberg. Come over to my house, let's hang out. But some of you, when I said, hey, we're starting a series through the Gospel of Matthew, in all honesty, you said, really? I, I know that story. Well, what about the Revelation? What about Ezekiel? What about anything on sex? Um, <laughs> I know that story. To that I would say, you know it at a surface level, but trust me, 
There's all this stuff under the surface. And myself and our teaching team will do our very best to take you down there to the treasures new and old. And my prayer is that you are, that we as a church family are recaptured with a fresh creative vision of Jesus. Now, back to Matthew chapter 1. All I want to do with the rest of our time together is show you that dynamic at play in the genealogy, all right? And I forewarn you, I am about to nerd out on you, not on Star Wars, but on the Bible, all right? So um, stay with me. Some of you love this stuff. Others of you hate it. If you hate it, just grin it and bear it for 10 minutes max because there is payoff at the end, okay? Yes. First, let's talk about the old treasures, At a surface level, this is a normal genealogy. And Matthew is just making the point that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, Matthew has to explain how a peasant rabbi from Nazareth, an obscure village up in the north, in the Galilee, not from Jerusalem, the urban, educated, progressive capital, the seat of power and authority for the monarchy. No, from up in the north, how he is the Messiah. He does that by tracing the royal bloodline from King David all the way down to Joseph, from king to king to king to king, all to make the point that Jesus is, in fact, of royal blood and therefore a candidate for the Messiah. That's all Matthew is doing on a surface level. You're thinking, yep, I know that. Yep, you know that. Now, let's talk about the new treasures. Under the surface, this is not a normal genealogy at all. For starters, that's not even the word for genealogy. It's the word for the book of Genesis. But then after that, there's all sorts of interesting things going on. In the sake of time, let me point out three. First, There are women in the genealogy. Come on, sisters. Now, that was not normal at all, okay? First century Israel is a patriarchal culture. Not all of the writings in the New Testament, the Greco-Roman world was not, for the most part, contrary to what you hear a lot, but first century Israel was. Women rarely made an appearance in a genealogy, especially in a genealogy of a royal bloodline, but there are four women in the list. Now, What's even stranger is who those women are. You see, there are four matriarchs in the Jewish tradition. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, Rachel and Leah, or Leah, depending on how into Star Wars you are, the wives of Jacob, who were called the mothers of Israel. So in Jewish culture from the first century down to the 21st century, even now today, those four women are center stage. But those four women are not who Matthew has in his genealogy. Instead, it's Rahab, a Canaanite, and a sex worker from the city of Jericho, if you know that story. Then Tamar, also a Canaanite, who we read about in a kinky story in Genesis 38. Her husband died, and when her father-in-law, a guy by the name of Judah, when he refused to give her the younger son in marriage, as was the custom of the day, she dressed up like a prostitute on the side of the road and seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant. Exactly. Think about your father-in-law right now and then stop. Okay? That That story is not exactly rated G. Then Ruth, okay, then Ruth, you know Ruth? who was great, but she was a Moabite. The Moabites were the descendants, if you know the story of Genesis, of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. Yeah, that's even grosser. 
and therefore were hated by Jew and Gentile alike in the ancient Near East. Then finally, we have the, quote, wife of Uriah, also known as, anybody know? Bathsheba. She, as far as we know, was a Jew, although we don't know that for sure, but her husband was not. Her husband was a Hittite, and depending on how you read the story, she either seduced or was seduced by King David himself, and the end result was disaster and civil war. It was, it was a wreck. So Matthew has four women in the genealogy, not the four famous well-known mothers of Israel, but Rahab and Tamar, four women, two at least, if not three of which are Gentile and not Jewish at all, and basically none of which are a moral exemplar, all in the royal bloodline for the Messiah. Matthew is saying, listen, all sorts of people are wrapped up in this story, not just Jews, but Gentiles, not just Jewish men, but all sorts of women as well, not just Jewish men who have their act together. No, all sorts of people are wrapped up in this story. Secondly, Matthew has made a few really subtle changes to the genealogy that you have to pay like nerd, special, close attention to not miss. In fact, most of it's lost in translation from Greek to English. If you have um, the NIV translation like me, which I am a huge fan of, but you don't even get a footnote in the NIV. If you have the ESV, you notice that there is a footnote after the name Asa in verse 8 and after the name Ammon in verse 10. Now, Asa and Ammon were two well-known, wicked kings of Israel. Right? So if you ever read one or two kings, you ever read the Old Testament, both not good dudes, rife with idolatry and injustice. But in Greek, the text doesn't actually read Asa and Ammon. Matthew has changed it. They're right in the correct spot in the chronology of you know, the genealogy, but Matthew has changed it. Matthew has added one Greek letter to make Asa into Asaph. Anybody recognize that name? Asaph was a worship leader at the temple in ancient Israel. He's the writer of a good chunk of the book of Psalms, and he prophesied a ton about the coming Messiah. And then Matthew has swapped out the last letter in Ammon, and he changed it to read Amos. Now, that's interesting. Anybody recognize that name, Amos? Who was he? Hebrew prophet, all about social justice, who also prophesied about the coming Messiah. Now, trust me, Matthew is way smarter than you and me. That's not on accident. He's not clumsy. That's not a scribal error. That is deliberate and on purpose. It's subtle. It's literary. It's an ingenious nod, and that's all it is. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the one that all of the Psalms, Asaph, and all of the prophets, Amos, have been pointing over the horizon to for hundreds of years. Then, finally, here's my favorite part. You have this whole weird, odd thing with the 14 generations right there in verse 17. Have you ever read that? It's a read through the Bible in a year. It's, you know, January 1st or whatever. You're in Matthew 1, and you think, man, I know there's something going on there. I have no idea what it is. But I, you ever have that happen to you? Yeah, there is something going on there. Okay, once again, there are layers. First off, this is a literary device called a gematria that was used in ancient Hebrew cultures where numbers have a symbolic meaning. So in the Hebrew language, there are no numbers in the Hebrew alphabet. Instead, each letter doubles as a number. So it would be like in the English alphabet if the letter A 
was also the number one, and the letter B was also the number two, and the letter C was also the number three. Does that make sense? Like, you're smart. You know that. So, um, in Hebrew, David's name, King David, most famous king in Israel history, his name is made up of three Hebrew letters. So, in written Hebrew, there are no vowels, only consonants. So, it's dalet, which has a numerical value of four, then Vav, which has a numerical value of six, and then Dalet again, which also has a numerical value of four, for a total of what? 14. So 14 was a symbolic number for David. And this isn't some like crazy fake news conspiracy theory on the internet late at night, okay? Imagine you're a first century Jew, you would have picked up on the nod. So let's say you're not all that into football because you're here, or you're just more into Jesus. But who's like, Who's a famous football player from the game today? Justin, you're over there. Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Is he like a quarterback or something awesome? What's his number? What's his number? Tw see, right there, 12. So let's imagine you're not at church with people that aren't into football. Let's, and Justin is an employee here, so that's why he's here. Um, so let's imagine that you're over at your friend's house and somebody says, go number 12. Almost everybody in the room, you know exactly what he is saying, right? He's saying, go, what was his name? Tom Brady? Tom Brokaw? Tom something? I don't know, whatever. You get what I'm saying, right? That's a well-known number. In the same way, you're in a first century house church, you're in a room, somebody's reading Matthew, you read the number 14. If you're Jewish, eight out of 10 people, nine out of 10 people in the room all get it right away. Oh, that's a symbolic number for King David. And notice that King David's name appears at the beginning of the genealogy, twice at the end of the genealogy, and then once right in the middle where it is number, wait for it, 14 on the list. Come on, yep, exactly. So this is Matthew's way of saying that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, once again, the son or descendant of David. But it gets better. That's child's play. Next layer down. Around this time, and kind of end of the first century, there was a well-known prophecy from the book of Daniel that said the exile would last for 77s, or it can be translated 70 weeks, meaning 77-year time periods, or right around 490 years. Have a look at this from Daniel 9. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That's God's heart behind the exile. No one understand this. Here's the prophecy. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and if you want to read about that, read Ezra and Nehemiah at the end of the Old Testament, until the Mashiach, or the anointed one, or the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be what? Seventy sevens. Now, this number seven, if you've ever read the Bible, comes up again and again. Every seven days was a Sabbath day. Every seven years was a Sabbath year. Every seven times seven years, or 49 years, was a jubilee year, which was a fascinating socioeconomic and even political innovation in ancient Israel. Personally, I think is way ahead of liberal democracy to this day, where every 49 years, all the slaves went free and all the land went back to its original owner. 
So it was a beautiful symbiosis of kind of a reward for hard work or like what we like about capitalism, but at the same time, social justice, equal economic opportunity, a way to break the chains of generational poverty, beautiful thing. It was called the Jubilee Year. Now, stay with me. In Daniel, we read about the 77s. Once again, that's not so much a literal number, although if you count up 490 years from Ezra and Nehemiah, it does put you right around Jesus of Nazareth. But that's not exactly how ancient prophecy worked. Daniel is saying that a long time into the future, 77s, 490 years, half a millennium from now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month or next year, way down the road, the Mashiach, the Messiah, will come to end the exile and usher in the jubilee to end all jubilees, an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity and social justice and the healing of the world. This won't just be King David all over again. It will be better than ever before. Now, for obvious reasons, Right around the time of Jesus, right in the writing of Matthew, that was a popular prophecy, in part because it had been right around 490 years. And first century Israel, even though they were back in the land, were at least at a felt experience level, were still in exile, still under the oppressive thumb, first of Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, now finally under the boot of the Roman Empire. So Matthew is tapping into all of that. What he does, and it's brilliant, is factor that well-known prophecy from Daniel 7 through the lens not only of years, it had been 490 years, but also through the lens of generations. So three groupings of 14 generations makes, do the math here with me, six sevens, right? Seven plus seven is 14, it's three of them, which makes Jesus birth the launch of the seventh seven. You see it. Matthew is saying that the long-awaited jubilee to end all jubilees is finally here in and through Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Come on. That's child's play. One more layer. Here comes the good part. Matthew has edited his list down. At least three names are missing, if not more. And uh, that was okay to do. That's not, you know, sleight of hand or fake news. If you were a reporter for the New York Times in the first century, that would have been okay practice. But the question still is, why would Matthew cut out a name here and a name there? Well, in part for the literary design to get the number to 14. But here's the thing. In that last grouping from verse 12 on, after the exile to Babylon, Jacoina, if you add up the names, you get to 13, not to 14. Then you get that odd phrase, Joseph, the what? Husband of Mary. Now that's out of place. What are you expecting? Jo exactly, well done. Joseph, the father of Jesus, because you just read a genealogy. So-and-so, the so son of, father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. And then you get to the very end, it's Joseph, the husband of Mary. That is a hint from Matthew, and that's not even a subtle one. It's a big one. The question that Matthew is leading you and me to ask is, who is the 14th father? Come on, how good is that? The whole thing is a setup for next week's story that we'll get into next Sunday. If you're new to the Bible, you're thinking, wait, 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 who is the 14th father? Come back next week, all right? <laughs> for now, just know that Matthew is saying that Jesus is more than just the long way to Messiah. He's more than even the prophesied one from Daniel, 
come to usher in the jubilee to end all jubilees. No, he is, in the language of next week's story, Emmanuel, or God with us. New treasures and old. You see how brilliant the writer Matthew is? It's almost like he had help or something. Now, to wrap up, let's shift gears. Um, If you're new to Bridgetown Church, the way we come at the Bible, we really believe that there's a gap we have to bridge between our world and Matthew's world. Um, We're literally separated by an ocean or two and a continent or three. We're separated by 2,000 years of human history. We're separated by language. We speak English, not Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. We're separated by culture. We live in the West, not in the ancient Near East. All, there's, there's a gap between our world and Matthew's world. So we have to bridge that gap. That's why I nerd out on you week in and week out. And we have to step into Matthew's mind and imagination, ask the question, what would this have meant to a first century Jewish follower of Jesus? But then we're not done. Then we have to walk back over the bridge to our home here, Portland, Oregon in 2017, and we have to ask the follow-up question, what does this still mean to a maybe Jewish probably not, that would be cool, follower of Jesus in Portland, Oregon. How does this ancient genealogy give shape to our apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth? So a few thoughts before we call it a night. First off is this, Jesus' story is our story. As I said, Jesus is the climax to the story of Israel and of humanity itself. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you are, in the language of the New Testament, adopted into the family of God, and you become, go read the New Testament, a child or a son or a daughter of Abraham and Sarah. This origin story becomes your origin story. If you're like me, you don't have a family tree, now you have one, and Jesus is in it. And this is great because we all live from a story, meaning we all live from a narrative script by which we make sense of the chaos and complexity of life in the modern world. The screenwriter Babette Buster calls human beings narrative animals. All sorts of work has been done in sociology to make the point that all of the isms of Western culture, materialism and now minimalism, capitalism, socialism, militarism, pacifism, atheism, all the isms are in fact stories meaning they are readings of the data, the scientific data, the historical data. They are interpretations of what it means to be human. The question that you have to ask, follower of Jesus or not, is what story am I living into? Because the story, the worldview, if you prefer, that you are living into, it will shape the trajectory of your life, and therefore it will shape who or what you become or do not become for better or for worse. So you have to ask, what narrative script am I living into? The narrative script that says more money, more possessions, that is the good life. Or the narrative script that says, no, that was my mom and dad's life, not at all. No, it's Portland, it's another night out, it's food, it's drink, it's hedonism, it's sexuality, that is the good life. Or the narrative of Jesus. Because Matthew claims that the story of Jesus is the real true story of the world. And that Jesus' vision of the good life that we'll read about, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but all through the gospel, it's not a vision, it is the best way to be human. 
And this whole thing is an open invite from Jesus for you to join in it. If you're anything like me, you want to drag Jesus into your story. You want Jesus the psychologist, Jesus the life coach, Jesus the cosmic vending machine, Jesus the whatever, self-help guru, to just baptize your agenda, bless your five-year plan, bless your career path, bless your socioeconomic cultural upbringing, just bless you, and then you go about your way. But it doesn't work like that. That is a recipe for frustration and angst. The last thing on Jesus' mind is the American dream. His agenda is not to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He was a crucified Messiah. He was put to death by the empire after saying, come, take up your cross and apprentice under me. Jesus' call is for you to learn a whole new way to be human to learn how to live into a whole new reality of life with God that he called the kingdom. So our job isn't to drag Jesus into our story, but is to drag ourselves into Jesus' story the other way around and to join in what God is on about in the world. Now, secondly, I love this. Jesus can use anybody and anything in his story. Anybody, he used Rahab, a sex worker, Ruth, a Moabite, Asa, a wicked king, so on and so on, right here in the genealogy. And he can use anything. There are all sorts of bad things right here in the genealogy. Adultery, murder, civil war, slavery, generational poverty. All of that is evil. I don't think God was in control of that. But somehow God found a way to turn that evil on its head in a judo-like move, use evil's weight against itself for good because that's what God does. I was reading through Genesis yesterday on my Sabbath and I read the story of Joseph from start to finish and I was just moved by the Holy Spirit. And then of course at the end of the story, the iconic line from Joseph, you intended this for evil, but God intended this for good. And that's so what God is like in the world. If you're anything like me, then you show up before God and with pride and with humiliation, with success and with failure, and behind you is a string of disappointment and letdown, and what was I thinking when I did that or didn't do that, when I said that or didn't say that? How can God use me? How can God use that? God can use anything, in particular our wounding. We think that it's only our healing that God can use. Remember, he was a crucified Messiah. In the language of the prophet, by his stripes we are healed. It's your wounding, your failure, your deficiency that God can use more than anything if you open up your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to Jesus. And then finally, I love this. Jesus' hand is on his story. If anything, this genealogy in particular draws out the sovereignty of God. That's language I shy away from uh, because it has all sorts of implications that I may or may not mean. But you clearly see it right here, God's hand on human history, his hand leading and guiding Israel over and over again through idolatry and justice and murder and civil war, getting it back on track all for the crescendo to the climax that is Jesus the Messiah. That's what Jesus does with Israel, with you, with me. How many of you can look back, if you've been following Jesus for a while now, you can look back over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, and you can see the sovereignty of God. You can see God's hand on your life. You can look back and see, oh my gosh, in the moment that was, I was angry and upset and confused and at my wit's end, but that was God in my life. Or maybe that wasn't God, that was me, that was all me. Or that was my mom, God bless her, or whatever. But God still used it for good. 
And there was that one time when I just felt all alone and I felt like absolutely at a loss, but actually God was there. I had no idea. This was coming and then this was coming and this was coming. As the saying goes, hindsight is twenty twenty. But the thing is, we all know this. Looking back, it's easier to believe in the sovereignty of God over your life. In the moment, it's a whole lot harder. In particular, if at all, like me, you're bent to doubt or skepticism, so I, um, I'm an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs, which is, quote, most likely to be an atheist or a pastor in my case. So I Googled famous INTJs this morning, and it's, it's all the communists. So Karl Marx, Stalin, Lenin. Then it's like Frederick Nietzsche and Christopher Hitchens, like basically every famous atheist out there. Nobody nice or happy on the whole list. Then I Googled my wife, who's an ENFP, and it's like Walt Disney and Chris Pratt and Katie Couric. And I'm like, it's not fair. You get Katie Couric and like Good Morning America. I know, Chris Pratt. Who doesn't love Chris Pratt? You know, like whatever. I get Nietzsche, really? So all that to say, ever since I was a child, you know, I've had this on-again, off-again struggle with doubt. I've actually been doing really well the last year or two, but man, it's just rearing its ugly head. Right now, my life, there's a lot about my life right now that is great, and I wake up in the morning, I thank God for. But I'm also in a season where it's hard for me to believe right now at an emotional level as well as a circumstantial level. It's harder for me to believe that the Lord is my shepherd that he's leading me right now, that he's guiding me, that he's involved. For me, my struggle with doubt was less about the existence of God. Uh, And if that's your struggle, this is a safe place for you to explore that. But for me, when I walk out the front door, for me, it's obvious and axiomatic. This is not a glorious accident. Whatever this universe is, there's meaning, there's purpose. I don't know how or when it was created, but I believe that it was created. For me, the much harder thing to believe was that that God is actually involved, not only in human history through Jesus, but in my life in particular, me. This ant, this speck on the spinning globe of planet Earth two millennia after Jesus' resurrection on the other side of the world in our little town. We're not a city, we're a pretentious town. Come on, we know that. (laughs) That God's actually involved in my life? Why would he care about me? That, That for me, the struggle to believe, That's been the struggle, to believe that God is here and that he's involved in my life. So every morning right now, I wake up, and my exercise is before I crawl out of bed, I just sit there and at a whisper to not wake up my wife, I just whisper Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I quote that to myself even before Chemex, and that's a miracle in and of itself. That's proof of God. Um, But I quote that to myself, not because I'm so spiritual. No, because I'm most likely to be an atheist and because I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Because I need to remember that the Lord is my shepherd. He is leading me and he is guiding me no matter how I feel right now. I see it in the past. I don't feel it in the present, but I believe, help my unbelief, I believe the Lord is my shepherd. 
Some of you are at that spot tonight. Some of you are doing fantastic. Others of you are at a spot where it's hard for you to believe that God is leading you, that God's hand is on your life. And I just want to say, he is, it is. God is involved in your story to the degree that you open up your life to his authorship. Every day, you open the blank page of your life and you say, Jesus, write. You're the writer, I'm the character. This genealogy, it isn't just a genealogy. It's an invitation to join the story of Jesus in the world in the first century and in the 21st, to join it as an actor, not as, as an actor. You're not the lead character, but as an actor. But you don't get to write the script, and neither do I. We're not in control. The Lord is our shepherd, and he can take anybody, and he can take anything. He can take your wounding and your failure and your success, what you have, what you don't have, what you've done, what you've not done, what you've said, what you've not said. He can take all of it and somehow put it into the mosaic that is the story of God because that's what Jesus is all about. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Jordan from Lutz, Florida, Sylvia from Friday Harbor, Washington, Tyler from Knoxville, Tennessee, Jared from Salem, Oregon, and Carson from Victoria, British Columbia. Thank you all so much. To join The Circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.